All right, good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to see some new faces around. It's good to see some old faces um, that may have been traveling for the summer. Uh, that's one thing about the summer. Everybody's kind of in and out uh, traveling and doing all those things. And so it's good to see uh, some, some of the old faces again. Um, hey, my name is Tim. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, before we jump into today's sermon, uh, I just got a quick announcement for you. Uh, we've been talking the last several weeks that our community cohorts are going to be launching out this fall. And I just want to highlight one of those for you. Uh, it's that first one there on the top there, Exploring God with Heart and Mind. Uh, this is going to be a great theological cohort. And if you're wondering, like, what is a theological cohort or what is theology? Well, theology is simply just the study of God. So you were, you're going to go throughout this course and, and just learn about God. You're going to learn about your faith. You're going to learn about why it is that you believe what you believe. Uh, scripture says that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope uh, that we have in us. And this course is going to uh, help you do just that. It's going to help you give an answer for why you have this hope in Jesus. So make sure you go to gracepointvegas.com and go and get signed up there. You can also find out about our other cohorts that are going to be launching out in this fall. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to pick up here in verse 7, right where we left off uh, last week. Now, if you are new here uh, to Grace Point Church, we want to say welcome, that we are glad that you are here with us today. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would like to give you one of those. So we have tables kind of scattered around the gathering center here. You can just get up right now and go grab one of those Bibles. Or, or if you're out there in the, uh, the lobby area, you can go out there and there's Bibles right there at Center Point. Um, and you can pick one up there. Now, this morning, I want you to think about life, and life is just busy sometimes, and sometimes we are pressed for time. Have you ever been pressed for time? Like maybe you're at work, and you got a big deadline coming up, and maybe you've procrastinated a little bit, and so you got to hurry up, and you, you're pressed for time. you got to get this thing done. Or maybe if you're a student, right? I, I know I've got teens. I was a teen once. Uh, I know that you know, sometimes I may have procrastinated a little bit, and there's a big paper that's due the, the next morning, and we didn't wait until 8 o'clock the night before to start working on that. Uh, if you're a mom, you, you, you under, kind of maybe understand this a little bit. Maybe this happened to you this morning. Uh, but you're getting ready to go somewhere, right? And you're, you're so busy trying to get everybody else ready and out the door uh, that you don't have time to get ready yourself. And so you're scrambling around trying to get ready before you leave. And uh, husbands, we're just kind of pacing around because we're already ready. And we're just kind of announcing like Big Ben uh, the, the countdown till we, when we get ready to leave. This has never happened in our house. Uh, I, I've just heard that this is what happens sometimes. Um, I also can remember a time when I was 17 years old. My parents had gone out of town, and uh, I don't know where they had gone, but uh, they were out of town for the weekend and left my brothers and sisters and I home uh, by ourselves. And we did what any responsible teens would do. We threw a party. Uh, and uh, my parents were coming home the very next day. The house was not clean. Uh, and so we were scrambling, uh, trying to clean up the house. So I, next morning, I wake up my little brother and I, I bribe him to help me hide the evidence. Uh, and so we're running around. Mom and dad are coming home. We don't know when mom and dad are coming, but we know they're coming back soon. And so we, we had to be busy cleaning up the house. And as we look at our text today, I think Peter is trying to impress something upon us. 
And he, I think he's trying to, to let us know a couple of things. And that one, that there is a sense of urgency about what he is going to tell us this morning. First, Peter wants us to know that our time is short. Like we, we get this, that, that, that the time of our lives is short. Like uh, scripture says that our life is but a vapor. Uh, we are here today. We are gone tomorrow. Uh, like just life is short. Uh, I turned 45 this past week. Uh, and it really only seems like yesterday that I was throwing parties at my parents' house. Or I, it seems like yesterday I could stay up past 9 o'clock now. Uh, it seemed like I could wake up in the morning not too long ago and not hurt myself while I was sleeping. Anybody else there? Yes. Oh, um, we get that. Now, uh, some of you are here saying, man, 45, that's really old. Uh, some of you are saying, like, ah, I wish I was 45 again. Um, but we get, though, it just seems like the older we get, the faster time goes by, and we realize that. Second, time is short in regards to the fact that Christ will return someday. The time is short that Christ can, and we hope and we long for, that Christ will return at any moment. And, and this is a good thing, right? We, we as Christians should be longing for the return of Christ, I mean, if you just look at the insanity of our world, this cultural moment, I mean, like all we can just look at it and say is just, come Lord, come quickly. But there's a grace in the fact that the Jesus has not returned. There's a grace in that because the longer he holds out in returning, the more people have an opportunity to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I know there's people in my life, I have brothers and sisters who I, I, I don't want, G, I want Jesus to return, but I don't want him to return yet because I have brothers and sisters who have yet to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I long for them to be saved. But we know that our time here on earth is short. And Peter's trying to impress upon us that the return of Christ is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And because uh, Peter's uh, trying to say that Christ is going to return, what he's trying to say is that there's some things that we need to do to get ready for his return. First, uh, Peter says right here in 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. He's trying to stress the urgency. Now, I want to just stop right here. It says, because we read this, the end of all things is at hand. And we begin to start taking, uh, looking forward to the return of Christ, which is good. But I think sometimes we as Christians are too overly fascinated with end times. I mean, like we, we are, we're fascinated. It grabs our attention. Uh, and we're, we, we know that our time here on earth is short, that Jesus is returning. So we get out our charts, we get out our Revelation index and we're plotting, we're trying to figure out like when is Revelation gonna happen? When is the end times coming? Uh, there's even this uh, thing on the internet, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called the Rapture Index. It's the Rapture Index. And this guy has this website and he's trying to predict when Christ is going to return based upon current events. Uh, and so he forecasts the return of Christ like a weatherman forecasts the weather. And so far, he's been about as accurate as a weatherman. Uh, he has, but one day, I guess he'll eventually be right. Um, but um, we uh, are fascinated with the return of Christ. Do you want to know who else was fascinated and wanted to know when Jesus was going to return? Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, they uh, were with Jesus and, and they wanted to know. They, like, they, Jesus, tell us, when, is going to be, uh, when are you going to return? What's, what's going to be the signs? When is this going to happen? We want the details. 
Uh, and, and so they wanted all these information about when Christ was going to return. Look over here. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, and the verse, first two verses, um, I want you to just pick up here. Uh, in Matthew 24, it's just one of those uh, texts in Scripture that uh, is, uh, talks about what it's going to be like when Jesus is getting ready to return. So verse 1, Jesus left the temple, and he was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... And so the, the disciples are there. They're like, Jesus, look at the, look at the temple. Isn't it great and grand and beautiful? Like, look how amazing and big this is. But Jesus answered them. He says, you see all of these, do you not? He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the disciples are like, look at the temple, Jesus. And he's like, yep, one day it's all coming down. And it's kind of like the equivalent of us, right? If we were to take somebody down to the strip and they were like, man, look at these buildings and the Venetian and the fountains and all the gondolas and all that. And we're like, yep, it's all going to be imploded. It's going to be leveled. And they weren't just joking. They were being serious. And what you want to know, like, okay, what do you know that I don't? Like, when's this going to happen? And so the disciples were hearing that this temple was going to be destroyed, that it was going to come down. And so they got a little curious about this. Look here at verse 3. So as he sat, out, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, Jesus, Jesus came to him private, uh, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they've been thinking about this. And they're like, Jesus, we want the details. We want the deeds. We want the 411. Like, Jesus, you need to spill the tea. Like, what, when is this happening? What's going on? And so Jesus begins to talk to them about the, 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 the end times in Matthew 24 for the rest of the chapter. But if you read it, I want you to notice that in pure Jesus fashion, he gives them the most non-answered answer. I mean, he answers their question but he doesn't really answer their question. It's kind of like when um, Jesus, uh, so the, the Pharisee goes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to be saved? He says, well, you must be born again. Uh, and, and like, we know what that means because we've had a lot of time to, to dissect that and figure that out. But imagine you're the first person to ever hear that. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? So Jesus answered them, but he didn't really answer them. But what Jesus does tell them to do is he says, you have to be ready. He says, you have to be ready. He says, you're not going to know the day. You're not going to know the hour. And that's really what's not important. What you need to know is that I am coming back. And when I come back, you need to be ready. And so then Jesus starts telling them some stories about his return. So if you go to Matthew chapter 25, go ahead and turn with me over there. Jesus tells them this parable. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. And virgins is just young woman who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. 
Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. He says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And Jesus is teaching this parable to his disciples, and Peter's sitting right there. And Peter's been saying, Lord, when, when are you going to return? I want the details. Uh, and Jesus says, you know what? It's not for you to know when that's going to happen. Your job is just to be ready when it does. And so if you had to look at this, the moral of the story, or the principle that Jesus is trying to teach is be ready so you don't have to get ready. And so Peter, is, he's, he's hearing Jesus talk about this. He's, he's hearing Jesus teach this. And the same Peter who's writing this book or this letter that we've been going through, he's heard the words of Jesus, and now he is teaching the very same thing with us. He has this memory of what had happened. He has this memory of this parable that Jesus has taught. And he's saying, don't be so concerned with when it's going to happen, but just be concerned that you are ready when it does. And I believe sometimes that we as Christ followers... We're more concerned about when Christ is going to return or when the end times are going to be here rather than what we need to do in the meantime to make sure that we are ready when he comes. So as we look at our text here today in 1 Peter, Peter is going to say, here are four things. Here are four things that you need to do to be ready when Christ returns. So let's turn back over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to start here in verse 7. He says, 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the first thing that we need to do to ready ourselves for Christ's return is we need to be praying. We need to be praying. Look at it, it says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for what? For the sake of your prayers, so that you can pray. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's difficult to pray, isn't it? Like, it's hard to pray. It's difficult to pray, and even in that. But it's even more difficult to pray when we're distracted. Um, I am not a multitasker, uh, and my wife, she knows this. Uh, I cannot do two things at one time. Either I'm doing one thing, and I've, I've tried, uh, but I just can't. So my wife knows that when she wants to talk to me, that I can't be doing anything else. Uh, we, we have figured this out. I'll be, I'll be doing something, and she'll be talking, and she goes, are you listening to me? And I'll be like, yeah, no one... Uh, I'm not. Uh, and she knows I'm not. And so she, she, she knows now to come to me and say, hey, Tim, let me know when you're done so I can have your attention. Because she, I, I just cannot do two things at the same time. I can't do what I'm doing and carry on a conversation with her. And so I, I, I can't be distracted by anything else if I'm going to have a conversation with her. Same thing with our prayer life with Jesus. 
We can't be distracted by anything else if we are going to truly be in prayer. And so Peter is saying, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Be aware. Don't be distracted by other things. He's saying that we as Christ followers need to be in the space of paying attention so that we can be in prayer. Now, if you look at our culture, right? It is increasingly more and more difficult uh, to, to not be distracted. Uh, I used this quote several weeks ago, and I, wanna, I, I think it bears repeating, so I want to use it again. It says, the modern world is a battleground for your attention. When companies build apps, produce television series, or market products to you, they are fighting for your attention. This is because they know that where your attention goes, your dollars follow. Attention is the most valuable resource on the planet right now. And most of us are giving, giving it away without a second thought. Everything in this world is fighting for your attention. And anything that offers something for free, it's not really free because you will be paying with it with your attention. So we pay attention. We're paying with it with our attention. There's a, a book by a guy by the name of Neil Postman. It's an incredible book. I highly suggest you go grab it and pick it up. It, it's, it's entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, and, and in this book, he's talking about how we as a culture are killing ourselves because of our addiction to being entertained through various types of media. And I want you to listen to this quote where he lists out the different ways in which we as a culture are seeking entertainment. Our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into congenial adjuncts of show business. Largely without protest or even much popular notice, the result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. Did you hear that? When did church or religion or faith in God even become a way of entertaining? It is. It happens all the time. Our politics, entertainment. News, entertainment. I mean, the whole system that we live in now is about uh, grabbing your attention because your attention is worth a lot of money. Did you know that? Did you know? Do you know the purpose of CNN and Fox News? isn't to just keep you informed. The number one purpose of CNN and the number one purpose of Fox News is to do what? To make money. So what do they do? They cater to their base. They know who their base are. And so if I can create a headline that's going to get you angry, that's going to uh, make you mad, uh, that's going to get you outraged, when that happens, then I have your focus and attention. And that means I get to line my pocket with advertising dollars. Do you, I, I, I want you to see that. Because when we are angry about something, guess what it does? It focuses our attention on what we are angry about. And we, we, we are blinded to what is around us. We, we, we don't take anything else in. So the distractions of this world, I want you to see, are just pulling us away from Christ. It's pulling us away from Christ rather than driving us to him in prayer. And I get it, it's easy. It's easy, no matter where you're at on the spectrum politically, it's easy to look at our culture and just be angry and feel outrage. 
And so instead of just raging against those Democrats or raging against those Republicans, what it should do is drive us to our knees in prayer. It's to drive us to that not God wouldn't just punish them, or, but God would change their hearts. That God would, would go after them. See, like when Scripture talks about praying for our enemies, loving our enemies, this is what we do. We, we, we should be praying that God would change their hearts, that, that, they would, that they would come to know Jesus. Not that Jesus would destroy our enemies, but that Jesus would transform their hearts and that they would be saved and come to know Christ. That's what it means. That's how you know when Christ has got a hold of your heart. When instead of outrage against the culture, you begin to pray for the culture. So while we wait for Jesus' return, we should be spending that time in prayer. So we are to be praying, but we are to be loving as well. Uh, look, look here, look down at verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter says, above all. Like, this is the most important thing. He's emphasizing the importance of that you and I have earnestly, earnest love for one another. So Peter says that we keep loving one another. So Peter's already assuming that if you have Christ, he's already assuming that you are uh, living a life of love. And so he's just encouraging you to, to continue in loving one another, to keep earnestly uh, uh, working towards that. Why? Why should we, why should you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ keep loving one another? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, you parents get this. You get this right. Like your kid's acting up. They're driving you up a wall. And if you ever looked at your kid and be like, man, you are really lucky. I love you right now. Right? Like you, like you understand that. This is also the secret sauce to marriage. It really is. It's the secret sauce of marriage. It's this beauty of marriage when you can look at your spouse and they, they see you and they see all of your faults. They see all of your weaknesses. They see all of your idiosyncrasies. They smell your stinky morning breath. Uh, they hear you chewing too loudly. They hear you snoring in your sleep. They see you squeezing the tube of toothpaste from the middle. Um, they, they, they see you throw your uh, clothes on the floor instead of the hamper right? They, they know all of your past. They know all of your mistakes. They know all the times in which you have hurt them. And then in all of that, they overlook that and they look at you and say, I love you. I love you. And isn't that what we really want? Just, not just in marriage, but as, as human beings, we want somebody to look at us, to know all of our faults, know all of our weaknesses, and their response to that would be, I love you. I love you. Like, we, we long to be fully known and to be fully loved. If you're here this morning, you should have a marriage verse. And if you don't have one, may I suggest Psalm 19? Psalm 1911 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's, it's a good thing to overlook an offense. Like a lot of times we as Christians, we get upset with one another. And I hear all the times like, well, I want to go, uh, I want to, Matthew 18. And I want to like, you know, go to them and tell them they've sinned against me. Do you know uh, overcoming Christian conflict begins not in uh, Matthew 18, but in Psalm 19? 
It does. When we, when we begin to overlook an offense. Uh, my wife has done this countless times. Uh, in our house, we, uh, next to our kitchen sink, we have a towel that sits right over the um, cabinet door. So that way when you're there and you wash your hands or your hands are wet, you have a towel right there. Uh, so that way when you go away from the sink, you're not dripping water everywhere. Well, in my house, I do the cooking. Kate does the, uh, the cleaning. So that's kind of our deal. So I'm in the kitchen a lot. So inevitably, I always take that towel, throw it over my shoulder, and then running around, I, get, I set that towel somewhere else. So that means there is no towel next to the sink when Kate goes to wash her hands. And so for the first several years of our marriage, she would just get really annoyed with me because there was no towel by the kitchen sink. And she'd be like, where's the towel? Where's the towel? I'm like, oh, it's over here. Sorry. And she's always hunting and looking for it. Do you know what she's learned to do? Uh, two towels, yep. <laughs> We've tried that. I take both of them. <laughs> we, we really have. Um, I don't do it on purpose. I, I, I just remember I can't multitask. I just can't think of two things at the same time. So I get overly focused and I just move the towel. I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm not doing it to annoy my wife. But she has learned to just overlook that for me. And, and our life has been better for it because it happens daily. <laughs> so my moral of that story is that Kate is a saint. <laughs> but love covers a multitude of sins. Now let me give a disclaimer here. This does not mean that it covers up abuse. It doesn't mean that I, I stay in a, an abusive relationship. It doesn't mean that, uh, okay, uh, I, I, since I love this person, I just need to take their abuse. It does not mean that. But what it does mean is that I can withstand all the relational slights, all the little things that get in the way possibly of a healthy relationship and friendship that I can overlook to the best of my ability. I can overlook these things. I can just, I can just let them go. It means I'm not keeping a record of wrongs. I'm not keeping a logbook of all the things that you've, uh, all the ways that you harmed me or all the things that you've done to annoy me. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to bring them up later uh, in, in an argument. But it means that I want to be so generous in my love towards you, so generous with my forgiveness for you, that even when there is a, a, a minor slight in the relationship, that even before it's acknowledged, forgiveness is already flowing to you. And if you look at that, that is so countercultural, isn't it? I mean, we live in a culture where it pays to be the victim, where we thrive on being a victim. And here, let me just say to you, Christian, this morning, that you're not a victim. Nowhere in the scripture where it gives us identity statements is victim one of those. Scripture says that we are more than conquerors. So it's like, I just want you to know, Christian, like, we are not victims, but culture is, is, is all around being the victim because there's power in that. So if there is any, any slight that happens, either perceived or real, it seems like our culture is constantly having a $100 reaction to a $10 problem. Like, like you guys, we see that all the time. What would your relationship be like if you were to put this into practice? What would it be like if you were to overlook an offense? instead of just always pointing out someone's wrongs. I mean, don't we like it when someone overlooks our misgivings? Instead of calling us to the carpet for every little thing, um, it, it's just wonderful when, some, when people around us just let some things go. 
I mean, we want people to overlook our faults and our misgivings and our idiosyncrasies, so we want to extend that to others. What if we did this in the church? What if we, we did this? What if this was the kind of love that the world saw happening right here at Grace Point Church? Whether the world knows it or not, every single person wants this kind of love. And if they saw it, if they saw this love, they would run towards it. Like this way of living is the greatest evangelistic tool that we have, that we would love one another. Imagine the gospel witness we could have, that we could be this place of love, where we would be this oasis of love in a desert filled with hate and ambivalence. Like we know, we see, we're starving for this, the world is starving for this. So we need to be praying, we need to be loving, but we also need to be hospitable. Look at verse 9. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I want you to think hospitality as in all the various ways that you make room for someone in your life. Now, when we think about hospitality, we've heard of Southern hospitality, right? And we, we think about hospitality and inviting people over into our homes. But I also want you to think about this relationally. Like, how do you welcome someone into your, your presence, do you have a welcoming presence about you? Think about this socially. How do you welcome people into your social circle or your friendships? Think about this as a church community. How do we, as Grace Point Church, welcome people in? And I want you to understand that hospitality is the radically Christian thing. It's a radically Christian idea because it mirrors what God has done for us. That when we were outsiders, Christ came and made us insiders. He welcomed us. And he didn't wait for us to kind of clean up our act before uh, he welcomed us in. No, he accepted us just as we are. See, Scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He welcomed us in. We didn't deserve to be welcomed in, but he did that. So in the same way, we are to welcome others into into our lives, into our space, into our relationships, into our, our personal presence. And then Peter says, and we are to do this without complaining. Have you ever been somewhere where it felt like somebody was being hospitable to you because they had to be? Uh, if you've ever worked in the food industry, uh, you, you, you understand this. That customer, you close at 10, but that customer that comes in at 9.59... Right? Like you serve them, you're kind of nice to them, but like you really don't want them to be there because you're ready to go home. Uh, and, and trust me, the customer knows it. They feel that. They're like, oh, they're going to be really mad at me right now. But have you ever been somewhere where you just feel like, okay, they're being nice, but like I just don't really feel welcomed right now? That's what's happening. We're to welcome people and be hospitable. And we're to do it without complaining. And let me just say, Grace Point Church, you guys are really good at this. You really are. I hear story after story all the time about how we are a friendly and welcoming church. I mean, just about every week, somebody comes up to me and says, man, I just felt so welcome this week. This is my first time here. Uh, and so Grace Point Church, let me just say, good on you. 
Good on you. Uh, we don't always get this right, uh, but for the most part, we're, we're trying to, to lean in this. We, we get, right, we understand as a, as a whole that it's not just the pastor's responsibility, it's not just our door greeter's responsibility, that we all take it upon ourselves to be greeting and, and friendly with one another. One of the best expressions of hospitality we have here at Grace Point Church happens in our community groups. Like our community groups are, are, are groups that just meet in someone's home week after week, and there's almost always a meal or there's some type of dessert or something. And, and our community group leaders or people who are hosting a community group are always welcoming people into their home week after week. Um, I know this is going to seem weird, but if you are a community group leader now or in the past, or if you currently host a community group, or you have hosted a community group in the past. Now, I know you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but will you please stand? I know it's weird. You don't want to draw attention because you don't do it for the attention. But this is good for the church to see. Yeah, thank you. Like, look, give these people around here. Yeah. Yeah. You guys can go and have a seat. These people, our community group leaders, hosting a community group in your home, they get this. They get hospitality. And I'm not saying our community group leaders are the only ones that get uh, this verse. Um, I just wanted to give you an example or so you could see some people who get this verse of showing hospitality, of welcoming people into their home. Uh, I also want to say this. We need more hospitality here at Grace Point Church. We need more community group leaders. We need more people who will step forward and say, you know what, I'll lead a community group in my home. We need more people to say, you know what, I will host a community group in my home. Uh, and if this is you uh, who, who say like, Tim, I would love to host a community group, but like, I really don't know what it is to be a community group leader. I don't know how to lead. It kind of frightens me a little bit. Uh, if this is you, that's okay. Uh, Myself and Andrew, you guys know Andrew, we are starting a new community group this fall, and it is a leader development group. It's a normal community group. But the whole point and purpose of this community group is to develop future community group leaders. So if you are here this morning and say, Tim, I would like to lead a community group. I just don't know how. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what this is all about. Uh, I, I'm just brand new. Come find me after the, after the gathering. Go find Andrew and let us know, like, hey, I'm interested in being part of this leader development group so that one day I can be this place of hospitality, of welcoming people into our home. And I get it. Welcoming people into your home is difficult. I think Peter said without complaining because he knew the old proverb that company is a lot like fish. They begin to stink after a few days, right? I think, Peter, uh, I, think, I think Peter had that in mind. And I get it when we invite someone into our home, maybe they're, they're not like us. Maybe they're the kind of people that leave their shoes on in the house instead of taking them off at the door. Or maybe they're the kind that use your nice towels in the bathroom. Or, or maybe they spill wine on your couch or your floor. Uh, but, but, but this is why Peter says, you know what? Love covers a multitude of sins. That, that if we're truly loving people, we can uh, allow them these uh, relational faux pas and misgivings. And finally, Peter says that we need to be serving. We need to be serving. Look at, look at verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of, God, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you know that God has given you a gift? Maybe he's given you more than one, but he has at least given you at least one gift. And he's given you that gift to use it, not to serve yourself, not to hoard it, but to use it to serve others. This is what it means to be good stewards of God's varied graces. I want you to pay attention to that word varied. Varied means that we don't all have the same gift, that we all have different types of gifts. And really, I want you to know that one gift is not more important than the other. I know we, we look at gifts and some gifts are applauded more than others, but, but when you look at it, no gift is better than the other. They're just varied versions of God's grace that he has given to us. And he calls us to be good stewards. And to be a good steward means I'm going to use that gift, not for myself. I'm not going to hoard it, but I'm going to use it in service of others. Now, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. You're like, Tim, I have a gift. Absolutely, you have a gift. God has given every single person here who's put faith and trust in him, he has given you at least one gift. And I want to encourage you this morning to use that gift to serve somebody else. See, our gifts, the gifts that God has given me, they're not about me, they're about you. The gift God has given you, it's not about you, it's about me. And, and what happens is when we use our gifts to serve one another, I don't get the glory, you don't get the glory. Guess who gets the glory? God does, absolutely. Because he is the one that has given us the gift. So how do we use our gifts? Well, one way we use our gifts here at Grace Point Church is on our serving teams. That's just basement level, the easiest thing, that way that we can use our gifts to serve. And so here at Grace Point Church, we have lots of different serving teams. We do. But I want you to know that just about every single serving team here at Grace Point Church is in need of people to, willing to serve. Did you know that? Like every serving team is short on people willing to serve on that team. We need ushers at our 11 a.m. and our 6 p.m. gathering. We need people on our cleaning team. We need people in the office helping with administrative tasks. We need people doing lights and screens and sound and video. Uh, we need community group leaders. We need people who are willing to serve in our early childhood areas and our GP kids area. We need people to serve in our student ministry on 608 on, on Sunday evenings. We need people that are willing to serve. Now, here's what happens. Have you ever heard of the 80-20 the rule? Where 20% of the people usually do 80% of the work? Now, I don't know what it is here at Grace Point Church. We have a, usually a pretty good, strong serving team. So it might be 30, 70. It might be 40, 60. I don't know. But we're just going to use 80, 20 just for the sake of this illustration. 20% of you who are doing the work, who are serving faithfully and volunteering, you are hearing this right now, and you're like, oh, man, where else can I go serve? What else can I do to, to, to pitch in? Let me just say, thank you for serving. 
but I don't want you to serve in another area. I'm not asking you to, to pick up any more slack. But for those of you who would say, Grace Point Church is my home. I, I come here every week. Uh, I, this is my church family. Can, can I just ask in the most gracious, uh, non-guilt way, why are you not serving? I mean, it's almost unfathomable for, for the Fraser family, for myself and Kate and, and the boys that are left at home, that we don't all pitch in and help out with the home. We don't pitch in and help with one another. We always are telling our teenage boys, hey, be a good roommate. Be a good roommate. Like, like, you see something, pick it up. Like, you see this, help out. And so all four of us are at home, and we're all pitching in, trying to, to make sure our house runs smoothly. Uh, like, we, we get the idea of little hands, or many hands make little work. Well, it's the same principle here. Why would we not serve our church family? If this is our church home, why would we not all be pitching in where 100% of the people are doing 100% of the work, rather than just 20% of the people doing a majority of the work. Can I just say, in a church this size, there should be no serving team that is short people. That's just the reality. Uh, and some of you I, I see come in week in, week out, and I like, are you serving? Let me just say, like, it's time. It's time. Like Jesus is returning. There's an urgency about this that, that we need to go and we need to get ready for Christ's return. And one of those things he's saying is that we need to be ready is by our serving. Now here in August, we are going to have a serving team connect. And you're going to see tables out in the lobby area. And there's going to be all of our serving teams or a lot of our serving teams are going to be out there. And you're going to be able to learn about all the different options and areas in which you can serve. But, but can I just encourage you, don't wait till the serving connect. Like, if there's urgency about Christ's return, if there's urgency about getting ready for that, why would we not do this now? Why would you not do this now? Go find somebody out at center point. Go find me. Go find another pastor. Go find anybody on staff. Go find a, a ministry lead uh, and just say, hey, I, I'm not serving somewhere, but where can I help? Where can I help? So we are called to be serving. And I want you to see that this morning that Peter is saying that our time is short. And he's saying that Christ is going to return any moment and we aren't to just be standing around just waiting for him to return or standing around trying to figure out when it is it's going to happen. That No, he's calling us to have a sense of urgency about it. He's saying Christ is ready, so we need to be ready so we don't have to, to get ready. There's a story in the Gospels where the disciples are with Jesus. Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven. And Jesus is giving them the final instructions before he goes into heaven. And all of a sudden, so he says, you know what? You need to go out and make disciples. And then all of a sudden, Jesus ascends into heaven. And the story is that the disciples are just kind of standing there looking up at the sky. And they're just standing there and they're staring at the sky until angels come down and says, why are you staring at the sky? You need to go get ready. You, know, you need to go be about what Jesus just tasked you to do. So our, my encouragement to you this morning is let's not be so caught up in just staring at the sky, waiting on Christ to return.
but let's have a sense of urgency that he is coming and that we need to be ready for his return. That we need to be praying, praying for one another. We need to be praying for the world around us that Jesus would save more people before he comes. We need to be loving one another earnestly. Uh, We need to be looking over one another's sins. I'm not saying that we should just like let things be and we can't really call things out, but what, what, what I'm saying is that, is that you know, we can overlook those relational slights. We need to be hospitable to one to another to, and to outsiders, and we need to serve one another. Do you ever notice all these things that Peter is telling us to do to be, real, uh, to be ready for Christ's return has a relational component to it? He doesn't say, you know what, you need to go out and start this ministry. You need to do this really big thing. He just says, you know what, you just need to live out the ordinary life of relationship with one another and with me. Just be relational to be ready. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. Father, we are excited about the possibility of, of your return. And we long for that. And Father, just, just help us to have a look towards eternity, that, that we see that there's more than just this life. But Father, I just pray that you would just help us to not just be standing around, just waiting for you to return, but that, that we, are, we are busy readying ourselves for your return. So that when you do return, that we're not caught Uh, unaware, we're not caught uh, not being ready, but we are caught being in prayer and serving one another and being hospitable and loving one another. Father, we uh, we ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.